And now <clears throat> let us stand for the reading of God's word from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. This is our sermon text this morning, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. But before I read our text, before I read from God's word, let us unite our hearts together once again in prayer. <clears throat> oh Lord, we pray now that your spirit would make the reading and the preaching of the word an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners, as well as building up the people of God in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation in Christ. And it's this we pray in his most holy name. Amen. And now Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, this is God's holy word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. My friends, everyone since the sin of Adam in the garden has come into this world a sinner. It's a simple truth, but a profound truth. Adam was mankind's first covenant representative. Since he represented us, since he represented us all, when he sinned, we all sinned in him and fell with him. We fell with him into an estate of sin and misery. And from the moment of our conception, 
as King David puts it in Psalm 51, from the moment of our conception, we are in sin. We are conceived in sin, as he puts it. Everyone who comes into the world is united to Adam, and since he sinned, we're all sinners. And so in just a few words, we can sum that up simply by saying that everyone who comes into this world is in Adam. They are fallen in Adam. Now, God sent another covenant representative into the world, a second Adam, Jesus Christ. And whoever believes in him is no longer in Adam, but in Christ. Christ never sinned, but was perfectly righteous. And everyone who believes in him is credited with his righteousness. Christ's righteousness is credited or imputed to all who are in him, all who believe in him. And so even though we sin, we are declared not guilty before God because we possess the righteousness of Christ. It's amazing. Though we are sinners, though we even continue to sin, because we believe Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to us, It goes to our account. And so we can stand before God the Father and he can declare us as not guilty. Not because of our own righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness which clothes us. Now from all of this, we can reckon with the fact that there are only two kinds of people in this world. There are those who are in Adam, who are in an estate of sin and misery, and there are those who are in Christ by faith, who are in an estate of grace. And all of this is what Paul teaches in the previous chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 5. As we go into Romans chapter 6, the chapter that we're looking at this morning, Paul anticipates a possible misconception to what he had previously been teaching. You see, someone might say, well, if God gave us grace for our sins when we believed, and if grace is a good thing, then maybe we should just keep on sinning. Sinning as much as we desire so that more grace can be given. Wouldn't that be a good thing? And this is what Paul is dealing with. This very thing is what Paul is dealing with throughout chapter 6. In fact, Paul asks the same question in verse 1. Since he anticipates that someone might think this very thing. He asks, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Do you see it? And how does Paul answer the question? Well, notice first the absolute disdain that Paul has towards such a conclusion. He says, by no means. 
God forbid such a thought. Then he further answers his question by asking another question. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now notice the impossibility of such a thing. The impossibility of going on sinning, as Paul puts it. It's not possible. How can we continue to live in sin if we have died to it? Indeed, a believer cannot. A believer is not able to continue to live in sin. Why? Paul's answer, because he has died to it. Now, what does that mean? Is Paul telling us that when we become Christians that we will never sin again? Sadly, there have been some Christian traditions that have taught this. It's a doctrine they call perfectionism, in which a person in this life can actually become perfect and never sin again. Now, listen, I wish that in this life I could get to a place where I never sinned again. But that is simply not what Scripture teaches. All Christians continue to sin until they die, until the day that they die and go to be with the Lord. So what does Paul mean when he says that we have died to sin? Paul is teaching that believers, and here's the answer, believers experience a one-time, definitive, unrepeatable death to the reigning power of sin. Remember, we come into this world united to the first covenant representative, Adam, and he plunged us all into an estate of sin and misery. Therefore, sin reigns over every single person who is in Adam. Sin reigns over them. Sin is their master. But when we are united to Christ by faith, we die once and for all to the reigning power of sin. Sin is no longer our master. You see, what Paul is doing here in this chapter is he's personifying sin. He's making sin like a person, like a, a, a thing that can act upon us. He's personifying it. He's making it a master who rules over those that are in Adam. And you can see this, I think, very clearly down in verses 17 and 18. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin. Do you see it there? Sin was the master and you were once its slave. But he continues on that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. There it is. You have died to sin as your master, but you have become alive to righteousness as your new master. If you are united to Adam, then you are alive to sin, which is your master. 
But if you are united to Christ, then you are dead to sin as your master. For now you are alive to righteousness, which is your new master. Now Paul goes on to use our baptism as an illustration for this reality in our lives. Now we often speak of baptism as a symbol for the cleansing of our sin. The blood of Christ sprinkles us clean, right? Well, baptism, the symbolism of it is multifaceted. Uh, Baptism also symbolizes our union with Christ, our being united to Christ. And so in verses 3 and 4, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were what? Baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too might walk in newness of life. You see Paul wants to help you to see that whatever Christ has experienced. You who are united to him have also experienced. If Jesus has died, then you have died. Verse 10 says that the death he died, he died to sin. And so if Jesus has died to sin, then you who are united to him have also died to sin. Not that Jesus ever did sin, but that sin... When it rains, brings about death. And so his being taken over to death, dying for us on the cross, he died. And in that sense, sin reigned over him. But death could not hold him. The power of sin through death could not hold him. And so if Jesus has died to sin, then you who are united to him have also died to sin. But there's another reality to this. You see, on the other hand, if Jesus has risen to new life, then you, O believer, have risen to new life. It is your baptism, beloved, that depicts this. You were baptized into his death and you rose from that death to walk in newness of life. And so verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now what Paul says next in the text is very important. Verses 6 through 7 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And what Paul is saying here is that you who are in Christ experienced a death. The you that existed when you were in Adam The old you, the old self, 
died some 2,000 years ago on the cross with Christ. Was crucified with him. Now you might say, well, I wasn't alive around 2,000 years ago. So how could I have died with Christ on the cross? Well, in response, I would say that you weren't alive in the Garden of Eden with Adam either. But when he sinned, all of humanity, including you, sinned in him and fell with him because he was the covenant representative of us all. Well, in the same way, when Christ died, everyone that he covenantally represents, including you who believe, died with him on the cross. Your old self, the self that was in Adam, was laid upon Christ at the cross when he died. And if we are united with him in a death like his, then we are also united with him in a resurrection like his. So, since your old self in Adam has died, and you have been raised to new life in Christ, this means that you have been set free From sin, you are no longer enslaved to it. You cannot go on living in sin. It's one thing to commit a sin. It's another thing to go on living in it. Unrepentant sin. Sin is no longer your master. Beloved, on the cross, a transaction was made. Christ took the sin of everyone that he represents, namely the elect, and gave to them his righteousness, which then defines their new life in him. And that is what happened 2,000 years ago for all of God's chosen people. But you might ask, when does this take place in the experience of my life? When do I experience this death? You see, your old self of sin may have died with Christ on the cross and your new self may have risen with him around 2,000 years ago, but you do not experience this in your life until you are united to him by faith, whenever that might be in your life. At that moment, and it may have been earlier in your life than you can to this day remember, But whenever that is in your life, whenever it took place, at that moment, you had a definitive, once for all, sever or a break from the enslaving power of Satan's rule by sin. You became dead to it. And you then became enslaved to Christ as your new master who rules by righteousness. That is, you are now alive to God in Christ Jesus to do righteous things. And all of this, beloved, is symbolized by your baptism. 
you are baptized into Christ's death and are risen to new life. An illustration of this very thing occurred in Old Testament history. Israel experienced a baptism at the Red Sea. We read about it earlier in the service. You see, Paul, the author of Romans, which we're in, also wrote another letter, 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, he said that Israel experienced a baptism at the Red Sea. He called their crossing through the Red Sea a baptism in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Well, what happened at the Red Sea? Well, Israel crossed through the Red Sea, but Pharaoh and the Egyptians were drowned in it. It was at that moment, the moment of Israel's baptism at the sea, that their enslavement to Pharaoh and the Egyptians was once and for all severed. It was no more. John Calvin picks up on this and says that death was symbolized when the Lord, rescuing his people from the domination and cruel bondage of Pharaoh, made a way for them through the Red Sea and drowned both Pharaoh himself and the Egyptian army. And he says... For in the same way, God also promises us in baptism and shows us by a sign given that by his power we have been led out and delivered from bondage to Egypt. That is, from the bondage of sin. That our Pharaoh, that is, the devil, has been drowned. End quote. Now that's not to say that the the devil... Uh, no longer exists any longer, but simply to say that his dominion over us has been killed, put to death. He may trouble us with temptation, but he is no longer able to conquer us. You see, out of baptism, the symbol of baptism, our baptism, symbolizes that we are no longer under the bondage of sin and Satan. Israel received a new birth of sorts at the Red Sea. And so too does our baptism symbolize our new birth in Christ. That's what it symbolizes. That's what it points forward to. Okay, so... That is the basic doctrine of this passage. Much more, of course, could be said. But that is the doctrine taught in Romans 6. Now, it's always our doctrine that informs our practice. That informs how we ought to live. And so how are we to live in light of this doctrine? Well, Paul tells us in verse 11 that at the moment of your conversion, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that's a command, beloved. It's 
written in the Greek language with a command, an imperative, something you must follow. It is a command of Scripture to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that word consider is an accounting word. It could just as easily have been translated, you must credit yourself as being dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must reckon that this is true of you. Now, why do you think that Paul put it this way? Why do you think he says, consider yourself this way, reckon it to be the case? Well, one answer to that question is that though we are dead to the reigning power of sin, though that's a very true fact, we still struggle with it. We struggle against it and may not always feel that we are dead to it. It may be true, but that's not always how we feel, is it? you're anything like me, at times as you face temptation, as you struggle with sin, you think, I feel like anything but dead to it. You see, beloved, though you are dead to sin, sin is still alive in you. It is something that we battle against, which is why in chapter 8, of the book of Romans, just a couple chapters later, Paul says that we are to put it to death by the power of the Spirit. It is very much alive, and we are to put it to death. And so our old self that was enslaved to the realm of Satan, to sin and this fallen world, that has been put to death. Our old self has been put to death. But this does not mean that Satan's sin and this fallen world do not still plague us with temptation. We are in a battle against sin. And we face that battle for the rest of our days in this life. Which is why in verse 12 Paul commands us to not let sin therefore reign in our mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. We must continually be sanctified. That happens throughout the rest of our lives. We must put sin to death. We must not let it reign in our mortal bodies to make us obey its passions. Now, how are you able to keep this command from Holy Scripture? Well, one way is by considering yourself dead to sin. Now, it's so important, I think, that Paul uses our baptism as an illustration of this doctrine because our baptisms, listen, our baptisms can be helpful in our struggle with sin. You see, beloved, baptism is a doctrine, first, to be believed, and secondly, to be lived out according to its implications. This is why the larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, speaks about the duty of improving our baptisms. Have you ever read that or heard anyone talk about that, improving upon our baptism? Well, the answer to question 167 
which discusses improving upon our baptism, it says this, the needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our lifelong, especially in the time of temptation. See, the catechism is simply providing us with the implication of what Paul is teaching here in Romans 6. When tempted to sin, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What symbolizes this reality in our lives? It is our baptism. We are buried with Christ in our baptism and we rose again to newness of life. That's what baptism symbolizes. And so when we face temptation, we should remember that we were baptized into Christ. This is what it means to improve our baptism. Johannes Voss states that we should improve our baptism, quote, in times when we are confronted with temptation, when the recollection of our baptism should serve as a reminder that we are of the covenant people of God and must live accordingly and not compromise with sin as ungodly and worldly people do, end quote. You see, our baptism is a sign of our being united to Christ, united to the risen Christ. And therefore, it is also a sign that visibly separates us from the rest of the world who are in Adam. We no longer belong to the world which is enslaved to sin and Satan. But now we are united to Christ. We are members of his body and therefore spiritually united to him. And so when we are tempted, we are tempted to sin, we should remember that we are baptized into Christ and separated from the world. We should no longer think and live like the rest of the world. That can be a helpful tool when facing temptation. Martin Luther, in his autobiography, said there, and I think on other occasions as well, that when he was tempted by the devil, that he would respond by saying, even yelling at times, I am a child of God. I have been baptized. And he was improving on his baptism. He was remembering what his baptism symbolized in his life. As he dealt with temptation and sin. Now one last thing I'd like to mention. See, the answer to the same catechism question that we just looked at on improving our baptisms also tells us that we are to improve upon them by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin. Meaning we are to improve upon our baptism as we grow in our assurance of salvation, to be assured of our salvation. Do we not all struggle with that? At times, 
Do we not struggle sometimes with whether we are truly saved? Beloved, I have certainly wrestled with such doubts in my own life at times. Children of God, when you struggle with being assured of your salvation, remember your baptism and improve upon it. Now, this does not mean that you should rely on your baptism for your salvation, because the simple fact or the, uh, the, the simple act of being baptized with water saves nobody. What I mean is that you should remember your baptism because it symbolizes that Christ died and rose again for you. And being united to him by faith, you have received all of the benefits that he secured for you in his life, death, and resurrection. You have been washed clean, beloved, from your sins. You have been justified before God. You have been adopted into his family. You have been set free from the reigning power of sin. And you are being progressively sanctified in Christ as he prepares you for his return to take you to be his bride without spot or wrinkle. And so remember your baptism and improve upon it. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. To him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the full Trinitarian work of our salvation. For you have planned and decreed, ordained all things, and have sent your Son to us into the world who lived perfectly but died and rose again for us. And when your Spirit works in us to bring us to repentance and faith, and we are converted, we too experience a death and a resurrection, being dead to sin, but now alive to you, O God in Christ Jesus. We pray that we will remember this, that we will reflect upon our baptisms and remember this reality, and so it may help us in our sanctification. It may help us in our struggle with sin in this life. Lord, if we have not yet come to faith and repentance, if we have not yet professed our faith, we pray that your spirit work in those here this morning to bring them to such obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.